Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Hi, everyone. I am so pleased today to welcome my friend and colleague, Sherry Keffer. And Sherry is a regular co-host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show program, New Life Live, with an audience of more than 2 million people each week. I've had the privilege of being on the program with her. For over 20 years, she's worked as a doctor of marriage and family therapy in Newport Beach, California. But through her own personal story of recovery, Dr. Sherry understands personally, not just professionally, the trauma symptoms often associated with sexual betrayal. She's also a certified partner trauma therapist supervisor, a certified clinical partner specialist, a certified sex addiction therapist, and a consultant in EMDR. And with all this, she brings fresh tools and a new look at what's needed, not only to heal, but to actually heal well. Dr. Sherry also speaks all over the country, and she's a recipient of the 2019 IITAP Outstanding Publication Award for her book, an excellent book, Intimate Deception, Healing the Wounds of Sexual Betrayal. She's also the founder of BraveOne.com, the Brave One community, and also runs a retreat, Bravery After Betrayal, It Takes a Fierce Strength, where she unpacks how betrayal affects the mind, body, spirit, and sexuality. She also, amidst all of this, holds a degree in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. And you can follow Sherry on social media at Dr. Sherry Keffer. Sherry, I am so glad to see you again and welcome you to our podcast. Thank you, Leslie. I just love the opportunity to be with you and to be able to just bring a fresh look at what's going on with sexual betrayal and um, how we can really help people heal. And I love that that is your heart cry. You know, Sherry, before we get into some of the professional expertise that you have, and you certainly do have it, this isn't just professional for you. It's personal. You've lived through it. And I think that adds to your credibility, both as a therapist and as a a woman, that you know what it feels like to be betrayed. You know what it feels like to be on the end of sexual betrayal and, and what, even though you are a professional, what you had to do to do your own work. Would you mind sharing a little bit of your story with our listeners? Yeah, sure. You know, it was so weird to even have you introduce me, you know, all those letters. It's like alphabet soup, to be honest, because when it comes right down to it, it's heartbreaking to be in a relationship. And I was, I had um, met a man. I was in Bible college at that time and I went to school and I was in a singing group and traveled all over you know, the country in this small singing group. Well, I was too. You were? <laughs> oh, are you saying? Okay. Oh, what are you? Uh, what, what are you? I, I see you as a soprano. Are you a I soprano? I do too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm a second soprano. Okay. Okay. Oh, you're, you can get a lot higher than I can, I'm sure. But um, so anyway, uh, in the singing group, I loved one of the guys that was in the group and he was married and they, they had three boys and I just adored them. Well, he had a a brother and it was a younger brother and uh, the brother was in ministry in another state. And I just, you know, said, well, Hey, you know, I didn't know that. And one day I said, well, Hey, if you ever find out you have a long lost brother, just fill me in. I'd be interested because I could tell he he would had come from good stock. Right. And so come to found out he, he introduced me to him and uh, we ended up having a very quick relationship. We dated long distance for a year and then got married. So if you think about that, now what I know, you know, we dated long distance for a year. So we were always up when we saw each other. And Connor is the name I use for him uh, just to protect reputations and all that of people. And I still want to be able to share my story, but he was working as a pastor at, at a church and I was mesmerized by that. I had grown up with a lot of pain and trauma in my home and a lot of shame around some of the stuff that had gone on. And so truly I felt like to be with Connor, to have known his brother, his dad worked with Billy Graham. I thought, okay, this is good. I don't can't get much better than that. Right. I can't get much better. I mean, you know, it's like, girl, put your shoe 
your foot in that slipper as quick as you can. But now I understand that was really about my idealization. That was really about my fear of being known. And because I've, you know, we were together, we didn't move into the same area and get to know each other. And I think for Connor as well, that was working for him. He had a fear of intimacy and that came up very early on in our, our first few months of marriage. I, um, I didn't know about how extensive his sexual acting out was. I did find out about one piece of information. He had called a 900 number, which again, back in the day I was at Bible college. I didn't know what that was. It was a sex line. And so again, I went back to my friends, his brother and said, Hey, you know, Connor called a 900 number sex line. I mean, what, what is that? What do I do with that? And he looked at me and I love his brother. And he said, you know, Sherry, probably every guy on this campus has called that 900 number at one point or another and, or they're lying to you. And it kind of normalized it. And I basically did what I thought I should do as a Christian. I, I thought, well, I'm not perfect. You know, I don't have a rap sheet that doesn't have black marks in it. I basically forgave Connor that day and move forward. I didn't go deeper. I didn't ask more questions. I didn't actually know what questions to ask. I know now, but I didn't know then and um, minimized it, went into denial. And, you know, once we were married, the sexual acting out surfaced and it surfaced in the form of him pulling away from me sexually, which isn't what happens all the time. Some people that are struggling with uh, porn addictions or sexual compulsivity or sex addictions won't pull away. They'll continue to act out. They'll continue to have sex with the person they're with, even though there's a whole hidden world, like a secret sexual basement that they go down into and act out. They come up from the basement into the house, like cook dinner and pretend like everything is okay. And that's the level of deception. Well, that was happening with Connor. I didn't know he was involved with prostitutes. I didn't know that he was having an affair and it ended up being affairs. I knew of the pornography as it surfaced once in a while, but I minimized it. I think I went into a form of denial. Dr. Jennifer Freyd calls it betrayal blindness. And her tagline on her book is while we're fooling ourselves, we're not being fooled. And, and so I, it was a secret I kept for myself so that I didn't have to really face the heartache as a new bride. And as someone that was very early married, I didn't have to face what was going on. It was hurting me, but I just, you know, denial is one of those things. We just put our hands over our eyes and, and that momentary step back from having to look at the thing that hurting us brings comfort for a moment, but it just doesn't stay there. So what finally brought you to a place where you were willing to look? Another D word. So denial is, I think, what kept me for four years not looking and things just got worse when Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking. But the second one was the other D word is depression. I actually got clinically depressed Connor and I went up to a camp retreat. It was one that we did with our church regularly up in the mountains. And there was a a little gal, darling little gal that came and she wanted me to go to dinner with her. And I was so depressed, Leslie, I could not leave the room. I was in our cabin and it, it felt like the corners of the wall were all darkened. I was sitting there, I was hurting. I didn't want to see people. I didn't want to face anything. And so she comes knocking on my door, right? This ray of sunshine. And she's like, hey, Uh, her name was Jenna. She said, hey, Sherry, I'd love to go to dinner together. Will you go with me? And I said, oh, honey, I'm just not feeling well. And she dropped her little head and she said, okay, you know, maybe tomorrow. And as she turned around to walk away, she looked back at me and she said, Miss Sherry, someday when I get married, I want to marry someone just like Connor. You could have hit me with a two by four. I was like, no, Jenna, don't, you know, all this 
hurt, fear, anger mm. came up because that was the last thing I wanted for her. And I, I think between my depression and just staying hidden away, something cracked inside. And the next day I ended up going to dinner and I shared it with one of the other pastors on staff. And that began like Legos falling and beginning to, you know, crashed down on each other and ended up us up in the uh, senior pastor's office. And there was somewhat of an intervention there where he was trying to really call Connor out. And at the same time, Leslie, he did something that was very kind for me. And I, some of you may hear this and it may feel uncomfortable to you, but for me, it was really kind. He, he looked at me and he said, Sherry, with all the compassion, why are you allowing this? And then he said, if my wife knew, if I was doing what's going on with Connor, she'd have my hide, you know, like what's going on. And I had never had somebody ask me the question, what's going on with you? I had been pointing the finger at Connor, but not really listening to my own body, not listening to my own heart, not even asking myself what I needed. I was just waiting, waiting. I love how you say that because we do, when I was writing my book on depression, that's what got me into, into the emotionally destructive marriage, because so many of the women who were depressed were in horrible marriages and they were waiting. They were waiting for something to change. Meanwhile, their whole soul, spirit, and body were, was closing in on themselves, where it was, was becoming depleted, depressed, dying inside, thinking that I've got to save this marriage or what's wrong with me that he doesn't love me, all of those kind of things. And the really important point I want to make about this pastor who was so loving and said, why are you allowing this? It's not that you can change Connor. It's not that you could you know, make him stop because sometimes pastors will say, well, why aren't you doing what he needs? So he won't do this. So they kind of make you feel like, oh my gosh, it's my fault he's doing this or it's my fault I haven't stopped him. And so that's not what he meant. He meant something like, it's so tempting to shut down and ignore, or once you become aware of it, focus only on his problem without ever realizing, why did I allow myself to suffer for four years in silence so much so that I became flatlined? Absolutely. You couldn't have said it better, Leslie. And, and that, that's where I ended, uh, ended up was flatline. And we were encouraged to go to a, um, a treatment center. It was uh, outpatient uh, for, for pastors and wives with issues. But what was so sad uh, about that is they really weren't equipped to understand, to have the specialized training, to know what to do with a full-blown sex addiction. And so I, I think I wandered way too long, you know, even after that four years, I continued to wander without traction in our relationship. Yeah, I often say that sex addiction is not a marriage problem. It causes marriage problems for sure. Like it caused marriage problems, it caused personal problems for you and personal problems for him. And it caused your marriage to be in deep trouble. But you know, going to a, a marriage retreat or a marriage recovery center isn't the first step, I don't think, because the marriage is in trouble for sure, but you can't fix the marriage until the person who's acting out begins to own their stuff and works on their own problem. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, there are intensives that are focused in with trained people that can get the couple in and start triaging. I get mm-hmm. that, but they're very specialized. It's not just let's go to a weekend retreat, tell each other how much we love or renew our vows. That's like the worst thing you could do, but I've seen betrayed partners and someone who's acting out do that because that's what they think is available. If we think about it oftentimes in recovery circles, there's this idea that we need to stay on our side of the street while somebody is doing their work in recovery. But let me tell you something, when it comes to sexual acting out, when it comes to compulsive sex acts and porn addictions and sex addictions, that idea of staying on your side of the street doesn't work. Why? Because of the sexual deception. And the type of harm that can happen when you don't know what's going on right under your nose. I often liken it to this. I say, okay, I want you to imagine if a burglar were breaking into your house night after night, 
and they began to systematically steal from you. They started stealing jewelry, money, and then you started noticing another night like a painting or two was missing. And then, you know, all of a sudden plants are missing and pots and pans are gone. And then because they can come in night after night, they become so cavalier that they actually go into your kid's room and they start taking stuff there. What do you do? right? We, we don't just sit around. We, we definitely get locks on the doors. We may have file a police report, right? We may have police drive by. We may end up putting, you know, cameras outside trying to fill, stop the craziness that's going on. But this is where it's even more of a heartbreak. What if you discovered that the person stealing from you wasn't a burglar? They were somebody in your own home. We can't sit on our hands. We can't stay on our side of the street and we can't let go of the steering wheel. Would you get into the car with somebody who's driving recklessly? No. And or not get out. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like, no, no, no. We can't, that whole concept of stay on your side of the street and wait, it doesn't work. Are these people who say, just stay on your own side of the street saying that you're just to let him do whatever he wants to do and you're not to challenge that or question that or have any boundaries around that? No, I think they're very concerned about the behaviors that are going on, but I think that they're trying to get that person on the other side of the one who's acting out into their own work, but it doesn't work with sexual betrayal because of the sexual deception. I, I mean, this is case in point from my own, my own life. Boundaries are an important part of learning how to protect ourselves. Boundaries are not about punishing somebody. They're about securing our own safety. So while I was waiting and trying to wait well in my recovery circle, Connor was continue, continuing to sexually act out and I ended up with an STD. Connor was not working on his stuff. He looked like he was working on it. And again, I had let go of the steering wheel. But then I end up with a sexually transmitted disease. And that's what can happen when we stay stagnant, when we just kind of believe that dogma, whatever is out there to just stay on your side of the street. It doesn't work. It harms us. We have to basically become more activists in the problem. In my Brave One community, I, I basically dismember that concept and I provide a very planned, systematic support, um, which I call the Brave One Journey, that helps walk people from those discoveries, those D-days, as we call them, through a process of stopping the craziness that's happening right under our noses. It's not going to go away. Time doesn't heal all wounds in this. Time doesn't heal sexual acting out. What heals sexual acting out is disrupting what's going on and beginning to bring safety and truth into that relationship when there hasn't been any. Give us an example how you would recommend a woman or how you wish you would have done it differently instead of being doing your own work and being silently forbearing and supportive of whatever you think he's doing. What would be a better approach for a woman who's has no guarantees her husband's doing his work. She doesn't know whether he's doing his work there's no way of testing whether he's doing his work. He says he is, but she doesn't know. And she is just kind of in limbo land. Yeah. What would you suggest she do? A lot of times, and this is not so uncommon, because of the nature of deception, it's hidden, right? It's almost like an opiate addict who, like, they can be sitting right in front of you and you may not know that they're using uh, because they're functioning in their life and job. Well, for me with the deception being under the ground and being with, uh, I, I love my therapist, but we were going to her for help and she was seeing us as a couple. We were going three times a week and we went four years. And while this was all going on, you know, he had multiple affairs during that period of time and continued to get, have prostitutes act out with him. So I think when I was trying to identify what are the two things that every sexually betrayed partner needs. They're what I call the pillars, their safety and the truth. And Barbara Steffens talks about safety and she says, betrayed partners are trying to find safety in a situation 
that's unsafe. Mm -hmm. And that makes us feel cray cray. And so safety wasn't enough for me. It didn't work for me. Safety alone, because I didn't know the truth. And that's where there are things that can be done to disrupt this pattern of acting out that is unknown, unknown to you, maybe even unknown to your counselors or the support group. And it's called a therapeutic full disclosure. Sometimes people choose to do that with a polygraph. So it can be done with or without a polygraph. But when something like that is done, it's basically a transmission of truth. There's information that's shared and it's more extensive than I can go into on this, this mm -hmm. time with you, but just knowing that there's something that can be done and it, there's special training for it. I've had people say, well, I went to my counselor and they just said, okay, well, let's have them write down some things and disclose like, you know, a list of things. Well, typically what happens is that list is a sanitized version of what they think you can hear and still stay, right? It's, right? it's not the whole truth. And and they don't get clean. They don't have the opportunity of coming into full truth when the Bible talks about confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. And couples that we work with, where I watch them go through this process because the pillars are safety and truth. And once I know the truth, I can now begin to figure out what I want to do with that truth. And then I can figure out what I need to be safe. Does that mean staying? Does that mean separating for a while? Does that mean that we have to go through a lot of other steps? What often happens because pastors are our first place we go and well-meaning unknowing pastors can minimize what's going on. I had one gal who um, her husband with the pastor said, well, Hey, I, you know, I started using porn when uh, you started putting weight on when we were first married. Well, the pastor bought into what he was saying and basically told the wife that, you know, you may want to go to Weight Watchers, do some exercise, hire a trainer. Devastated her. I've done enough of these therapeutic full disclosures as it, that I can honestly say to all of us here, the acting out and the porn did not start right then. It has a tail. Just like with Connor, it started when he was eight years old and many of these young men and even now women are getting hooked. These devices that we have are calling to our kids. These devices aren't waiting for them to find it. They're bringing it to them. I just heard Josh McDowell talk and he was saying that there's over 2 billion, 300 million porn sites today that are out there. And that's an astronomical number and people get hooked. So what I hear you saying to the woman, Sherry, is this, and I'm going to use a different metaphor. If you discover, or let's say you had a, a fire in your house, that's the betrayal. Oh my gosh, our house is burned, smoke damage everywhere. How do we fix this? Unless you can understand how the fire started, where the damage is, and clean it all up, putting a fresh coat of paint <laughs> and new carpet down. Yep that yuckiness is going to come right back. Yeah. And I think that's what typical marriage counseling does is it looks awful. Oh my gosh, what can we do to make this look better and smell better right away without clearing out all the smoke damage or the water damage or the black mold and really doing all that yucky work of cleaning all that out first before you put in anything new. We just, we don't want to do that hard work. It's expensive. It takes time. It's painful. It's inconvenient. So let's just put a fresh coat of paint and new carpeting and hope the smell goes away and it doesn't go away. And so when you look at the metaphor of restoration work of damaged furniture, damaged homes from a tornado or fire or any of those kind of things, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but maybe it's not even worth doing the work. Maybe it's a totaled car. Maybe it's a totaled house. And until you know the truth, of what all that is, it may not be safe to live there. It might have toxic black mold. It might have it in the foundation. It might have termites. If you don't look at that and know what that is, then you could decide, okay, we're going to invest in restoring this or, oh my gosh, we better burn this to the ground because it's toxic to the whole neighborhood. That's a great word picture. I, and I think what happens, and again, this is well-meaning people 
is without doing what you just said, dismembering that, having to figure out what's underneath this, they unknowingly collude with deception. Right. And that bothers me. There's a whole black mold problem going on in, in his heart, in his soul. And that's true whether he's a sex addict or a control addict or abusive in other ways. There's stuff going on in the abuser or the betrayer's heart that impacts the marriage. Just like if I was a drunk driver, I would impact the other car. But it's not the other car's fault that I knocked into you. And I think this is where we get really... For the victim, like maybe I did gain too much weight, or maybe I'm not sexy enough, or maybe I'm not cute and perky like I used to be, or like she is. And of course, he'd want her more than me. And so somehow we take it on as our responsibility, or maybe I did have a, a smart you know, answer to him and he was mad at me and cheated on me because of that. It's always something we've done wrong, or we could have done differently, or something's wrong with us. And that tends to be the way we kind of think automatically, because if it's us, we could fix it. And then he won't do that, right? It gives us a kind of a false hope. But it's, it's, again, not the truth. And when we go in that direction, we spend a lot of time trying to fix us so that he won't do that. Now we need to fix us, but it's not so he won't do that. You and I both talk about gaslighting and the incredible harm it can cause when the one who's sexually acting out makes it the fault of ours, right? In this case, the weight becomes the issue. And gaslighting is basically when someone strategically twists the truth to make us feel there's something wrong with us instead of you know, looking at the problem that's going on. And it's, it's a distraction and it's considered psychological abuse. I think a lot of pastors are struggling with this as well. And so it makes it real hard to call somebody up and out when, when it's the thing that you're working so hard to hide, just like Connor did. Everybody else. Yeah. So we've talked about what does a woman do to create safety? One of the things is she must know the truth because you don't know whether you're safe or not until you know the truth. What would be the next step? So now she's asking for a full disclosure, whether it's a lie detector test or whether it's some other professional who can really manage a full disclosure. And she hears yicky things. She hears horrible things. He seems like he's been honest or the lie detector shows he's told everything, but he's not a hundred percent doing the kind of work that she might need in order to rebuild broken trust. And what's the next step? Well, from my own experience, typically if it's been done well, and that's where I'm a bit mama bear about how these things are done. Typically, once somebody has gone through that process, they don't want to go back. They don't such want a relief. It's such a relief to get it out in the open. They don't want to. It's, it's like Saul to Paul. I mean, they're relieved that the truth is out, but now their partner is hurting over what they did not know. So at that point, you know, the partner has the opportunity to again, choose I want to choose what I need to do with this human being. I want to choose what's safe for me. Am I going to stay? Am I going to go? They don't typically make ideas like that day or the next day to just make a huge change. They usually, there's too much at stake. There's kiddos, there's homes, there's pets, there's their life. There, there's all kinds of stuff that like prompts them to want to stay and fight when I did my research, Leslie, with a hundred women, when I said, asked them, would you be willing to stay if they were to stop lying? 88% of them said, I will do that. I will stay. And I see that resiliency in them. I see them staying. And now because it's their choice and because things are going to be different as they begin to see that person remain sober, remain committed to their recovery, begin to be honest, vulnerable, start to take ownership over what they did, and then begin to show more empathy skills, caring skills for understanding that they're the one that threw the grenade in on the family and, and they're not defending, um, they're not making it about us. They become safer to attach to. Now, if somebody goes the other way, like you just said, and 
however they did it, and I know this has happened because um, I get lots of stories where they somehow passed the polygraph and they were acting out, like somehow got through. And then the betrayed partner finds out at some point later on that they were still acting out and yet passed the poly. That's what's called sexual entitlement. It's not that I can't stop doing what I'm doing. It's that I don't want to. Right. And I'm choosing to deceive you and keep this whole charade up. And I'm hoping that you'll stay here and, you know, I can come home and got the kids and homework and all that. But it, it's a whole nother level of deception. And when I sit with partners in that place, I immediately get them into what do you want to do? with what you now know. Deception is a deal breaker in marriage because you cannot have trust and safety if there's active deception in the part when you're trying to rebuild a marriage after betrayal um, and you're trying to say, okay, can I have safety with this person? And if they're good enough to lie and pass a polygraph test, I don't see how you could have safety because how would you ever know whether they're telling you the truth or not? Yeah. So get that. I've had people not pass the poly and, and that's devastating in and of itself. But what we do with that is they just, they, if the partner wants, right. If she's not going to say, all right, I'm done. Most of them I find go, okay, you lied again, but then they go back to work to figure out what was it that they were withholding? What was it that they lied about? And and I've had round two disclosures that come through with the polygraph again, and they can come out on the other side. When we don't do these kind of things, Leslie, when we live with the black mold, it starts to hurt our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, just like black mold would hurt our bodies if we were living with it, like you can't see it, it's in the walls. But with betrayal, we end up with post-traumatic stress symptoms. And that's like thoughts coming into your head that you didn't welcome, image popping up, um, nightmares, flashbacks, not wanting to go to places that remind you of where they sexually acted out. And, you know, hypervigilance, which is a normal thing for betrayed partners who are constantly on the alert. And to be honest, Leslie, I mean, I went through this with Connor I still have some level of hyper vigilance and I'm not even married to the one who betrayed me. It's, it's like the skin that I'm in. I'm, I'm much better, way, way better. Like if you knew me then and you knew me now, so there's hope and growth, but basically, you know, we live in a beach city and I was walking down the other day with my husband and I look up and there's a woman, she's probably 20 feet away from me. And basically she's got a bra on, she's got a bra and tight stretch pants. And I don't mean some kind of a little workout thing. I'm talking a bra. Now I literally feel my body hypervigilant. My, my blood pressure goes up. I am like, do, 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 warning, 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 enemy, enemy. I mean, that is in me. And then I'm thinking, what is he doing? Where's he looking? I mean, that's hypervigilance. And he knows this about me. He has learned what helps me in moments like that. And this is for those that have acted out, whether you are in a healthy place of recovery or whether you're like me and you married somebody else, that hypervigilance is my responsibility to manage. And so I've told him this is what I need in moments like that. And, and so he cares for me. He saw her. He knows me well enough to know okay, this is going to be a problem for Sherry. And so we were walking by and he looks over into this window. I can't even tell you what the store was because my brain was mush at that point, but he's like, oh, that's really interesting. It's kind of interesting that what they're, you know, doing. And there's a sign in that store that he just starts talking about whatever he saw to look away. And I'm telling you, Leslie, that just does something to support my soul because he's seeing me and he's realizing that at that moment, that is caring, that is loving, that is protection. Mm -hmm. But I had to let him know that this is what I need. I had to use my voice. Mm -hmm. um, and even before I went down, this is what I told him. Some of you may think I'm cray, 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 but I'm not. I'm a trauma survivor who's being very responsible with the wounds that have impacted me. I said, honey, we're going down, down. And you know, as well as I do, 
that there are sometimes people walking down in, you know, bathing suits or in their underwear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Again, I, I asked for what I needed and that empowers me to get the help that I'm looking for. And then I, I get to see that he's, he's doing loving, caring work to, to support me. So what I'm hearing you say two things is one is whatever he's done or isn't doing or whoever he is, you still have work to do if you're going to be healthy and strong. And one of them is know yourself, know your triggers, know your healing path, know where you're on in that healing path and know what you need next. And so that's, even though you're far beyond where you were before, you're still on the healing path. And when you get triggered, you know what you need. So those are all things that you had to learn to do because before in the beginning of your first marriage, you just went into denial and you didn't know anything you needed. You just shut down and tried to ignore and avoid. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or if we were at a place like that, same situation, Connor would just gaze on, he would look at her and he would just stay his eyes would just follow her and I would be shocked. I didn't learn how to use my voice at that point. So I would just kind of be frozen. And then I would blow up later once I got my head back. Now, some people, you know, they're, they're angry right then. And, and I don't, I don't shame us for doing that. It's, it's a part of the betrayal. Mm -hmm. We, like you said, Leslie, we have to learn how to be responsible for that. And I help women learn that when those moments happen, get into your body. You know, you are going to feel like what I felt, mushy brain and the bottom's going to drop out. And you may not be able to say something that very second. Don't shame yourself for that. But realize at your first opportunity, when you get your wits back about you, that's a conversation. I saw you look at that person and you stayed with them. That hurt my heart. That's not okay with me. And when they say, I don't know what you're talking about, because some of them will say, oh, yeah, no, I know. I'm, yeah, you're right. I, and then many of them will say, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what lady? And then I've learned that I still hold on to my voice. I still hold on to myself. And I say, you know what? I saw you looking at her. I don't need to be convinced that you were looking at her. That hurt me. And now, I'm more hurt and more scared and more upset by the fact that you're not owning it. And that's not okay with me. Now, do you hear the firmness in my voice? I'm not, I, I'm, it feels like it comes from the deepest part of my gut. Like I am, I am in my core self. And you talk about this a lot, Leslie, in the work that you do, but it, it comes up like lion of Judah. No, this isn't okay. And when I do that, I give myself a little pat on the shoulder and go, go me. Right. You know? I know what I know. And you're not going to gaslight me out of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. By making me think, oh, was I just crazy? Was I just imagining it? No, I know what I know. And I know what I feel. And now I'm going to let you, ha- I'm going to give you, and you don't say this, but I'm going to give you a chance to own that and apologize for that and care about that. And if you choose not to, I know some more stuff now. I have more information in, in that you're lying to yourself and you're lying to me and you're not willing to own things. What does that mean for us? So it's like looking behind the stove and saying, Oh, I know what I know. I see the black mold. Now that I see it, I can't ignore. He's saying there's no black mold there. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. I know what I know. I'm congested. I all those kind of things. And I think so often we allow ourselves to get talked out of Mm -hmm. our knowing because we want to save the relationship that we don't want them to be mad at us. The goal is to stay strong enough to not let them bully you out of what you know. I love, love, love what you're saying. There's been years and decades of people, again, well-meaning professionals that have taught this stuff that would actually say that that person you just described was in denial. They are not in denial. That person you just described, Leslie, they're in deception. They are lying. And that's where I think if we say it, if we call it, if treatment professionals say, well, that's a part of healing, they're going to be in denial for a long time. They might be in denial for weeks and months, maybe even years. I'm going, no, let's don't take that bait because it doesn't help them heal. It's not like we don't know. We do know. We're just refusing to acknowledge. That's deception. 
there's a guy by the name of Dr. Ken Adams. He was one of my supervisors as I was going through the sex addiction program. And, you know, in the training, he was talking to all of us in a room and he said, you know what, as a therapist, he said, part of my job is to sit with those who, you know, are acting out. I'm there to help them, to serve them. He said, but part of my number one jobs is to help wake them up. Like I'm there to help wake them up to what they're doing. I never forgot that. And so when I began working with some, some folks that struggled with sex addiction, I remembered what Ken said and I thought, okay, well, let me, let me do this. And so lovingly, caringly, I began to wake them up to what they were doing. And what I realized in my office is they were awake. They knew <laughs> and they continued to act out. And that's the thing that I think the enemy of this world wants us to be caught up in deception, whether it's self-deception, whether we are living and don't know what's going on. And the path to freedom is what Jesus said, the truth will set you free. So on that note, let's close with a question about children, because I think this is a huge issue. So let's say this is disclosed, this is out in the open between the couple, at least as much as she knows, but it's really causing issues in the marriage. So am I going to stay? Am I not going to stay? I've got three kids. Do I tell them? Do I tell them what's going on? How honest am I with them about the reality of why we're not together? Why we're having problems? Why we're not living together? Why we got divorced? How much would you say that children need the truth to be able to process what's happening to them in the family? There's so many layers to this question. Anytime I do something like this where I'm talking, my, my fear is that somebody's going to hear what I say and then go home and do it, even though right. their situation doesn't warrant that, right? So if there's any time in you and I talking today, if there's any time I want people to pause, it's right now. Pause. When you move into this part of what to disclose to your kids, it takes time. It takes consideration. It takes wise counsel. It takes learning everything you can about child disclosures, when they're appropriate, when they're not. Because you and I both know we have people that are together as a unit that are trying to work through this. And then we have some people that the one who's betrayed has left. And then the, the mom is there with kids that don't know why all this has happened. And those are completely different situations. The best case scenario is when the person who's betrayed and the person who's been betrayed as parents have a planned written, because I, I say it's better to write it out so you know what you're going to say instead of just winging it in these cases, a planned disclosure to, to talk about with your kids at an age appropriate level. Now, why do I say both people would be an amazing gold standard and not everybody has it. So if you're here listening and you don't have this, I'm going to be talking with you in just a second, but in situations it's because if one person shares and the other person isn't involved in that disclosure statement, they haven't, you haven't talked with them about it. There isn't a plan about what you're going to say. It's called an unbalanced disclosure. And that comes from, it might be anger, it might be poor boundaries, or it might be that, you know, as a betrayed partner, I just want kids on my team. Like there's all kinds of reasons. I want them to hate them like I do. Yes. I mean, that's a very real thing. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. But what happens in an unbalanced disclosure is that child feels triangulated between the two parents and it's already a pull. They feel like they got to pick sides and they're going to pick sides of, you know, maybe the parent that was maybe more in the victim seat and that didn't know like, and all that stuff just creates more of a dust cloud. There are something called forced disclosures. Forced disclosures happen when maybe your husband is a principal of a school and it's going to be disclosed in an email. It's going to go out to all teachers that that principal has acted out with the kid on campus. Okay. That's imminent. That means you need to tell your kids right away before they hear it through some email or third party. Sometimes parents will soften the disclosure. You gave an example of that when you were just talking where depending on what's age appropriate, right? Daddy lied to mommy. And this was a big lie. This was something that really hurt mommy's heart because daddy acted in a way that made mommy feel unsafe in our marriage. That's a big thing. And so 
daddy and mommy are going to work on it right now. We're not going to be living in the same house for a while, but you want to assure them we're seeing counselors. Mommy and daddy are talking to people. Our goal is to help create a safe home. You don't know whether that's going to happen or not, but it might, right? It might, it might not. So those are all softening ways. I've had situations happen right in front of me where a child has been told by a parent that dad had sex with seven women and he immediately as a a little budding 11 year old wants to know he's curious how many times he had sex with each person and who are they and some of those questions who are they is a legitimate question is it my neighbor is it my teacher is it my sister-in-law like you know and if it is somebody that they know they deserve the right to know that this is somebody that we know so that they don't years later end up going, well, gosh, you know, we were around Aunt Susie every time we got together. So there's a lot of factors to consider when you're thinking of disclosures, information that is given to our kids. It's important that you consider what that child is going to be left with in their brain, right? So gory details are not good. But if you're dealing with a you know, 19-year-old or a 22-year-old, there's a whole different development level of understanding. And so again, pause, get as much information as you can about this before you embark on your plan for sharing and disclosing to children, because we want them, they're, they're the ones that have the least amount of power and control over all this. They can't fix it. They're not in the place to fix it. And so we want to protect them from being in the middle of it or from burdensome details that they'll live with for the rest of their lives. Right. I mean, even in a healthy marriage, kids don't want to know their parents have sex, right? So yeah, (laughs) they don't want to know in an unhealthy marriage that they had sex with other people for sure. Um, I think it's, I think the the biggest deal is he wasn't honest. Dad didn't tell me the truth about something really, really important. And you don't have to go into what those details are because every kid gets that. And I think that really examining your own heart of what's best for my child. It's best for my child to know because otherwise they're going to make up a story in their head about why you've separated. Oh, it's because I didn't do my homework. Oh, it's because I I mouthed off to dad and he left and he doesn't like me. We don't know what story he's going to make up in his head or she's going to make up in her head. So it's best to tell the kids, hey, dad and I are having problems. We're working on them. We both love you and we're going to separate from it. And you don't have, and if they want details, you don't have to tell them more, but you do need to tell them some level of truthfulness that it's not you. It's something in us and in however detailed you have to get because of the length of separation or the drama that, or even just because you're crying all the time. And I've had parents agree on terms like unfaithful. I was unfaithful. Um, I betrayed. That was another, depending upon the age level. Again, it's just being thoughtful about what's best for them. Some of the women in my community have asked me, well, my 13 year old daughter is asking, did dad have an affair? Well, let's just create a scenario. They're separated, right? Dad, did dad have an affair? Think about it. That's a 13-year-old that is asking you a very clear question. And and so letting that person know, your spouse know that this 13-year-old's asking if you had an affair, I don't want to lie to her because that perpetuates the deception. I've had moms say, you know what? It's a really important question. Let me get back to you within the next 10 minutes, five hours, whatever it is. Or I've had some just say, I just felt like the right thing to do was be honest and said, yes, he has. So uh, every person is going to be different. Again, you just want to have a very child-centered perspective. And the best case scenario would be to collaborate around this. Yeah. And so they even invite the dad to say, our daughter's asked, and do you want to tell her? Yeah. Do you want me to tell her or do you want us to tell her? Because I'm not going to lie to her. Exactly. And that, that's where it's healthy. It's going to hurt her but it's healthier than saying, oh no, because when she finds out, you know, whether it's six months, a year or 10 years from them, she's going to remember, mom, I asked you. This goes back to helping our children do the very things that we didn't know how to do. And that is trust that gut feeling that something's wrong. So when a child senses their parents out of sort, 
you know, you're crying all the time or your father's falling down the stairs and they say, did daddy drink too much? And you say, oh no, he just doesn't feel good. No, they know he drank too much. When we try to cover all that up and make it all nice, we're saying, my kid's seeing black mold on that walls. And they're saying, oh, look, there's black. Oh no, that's just a little stain, you know? And we're not truthful. We're teaching them to not trust what they see. But you said it really well in the beginning. And I think this whole idea of being in a destructive relationship, whether it's sexual betrayal or financial betrayal or spiritual betrayal or any other kind of betrayal, this act of deception of them deceiving you and then you deceiving yourself. And sometimes, you know, and you know this too, that when we're sitting with somebody who has this going on and they've been in it for a long time and it's hurting their body, it's hurting their whole system and there's money that's being taken and and it's just bad. Sitting with them and asking them what their greatest fear is. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of losing? What, what, Mm -hmm. What are you afraid will happen to you? And there's such honest, raw, things that surface at that time, even though they might start with, well, I'm not afraid of anything, but you know, you just lovingly, caringly drill down because it's probably the most innermost part of their heart. Yeah. There's, you know, I don't want to be alone. Right. Or I'm afraid of dying, you know, but, but, but you have to face it. You have to face it because not facing it doesn't mean it's going to go away. Yeah. So true. Well, Sherry, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. This has been amazing. I'm sure our listeners will find so much value in this. I know that you created a test for them to kind of assess. Where can they find that test? Yeah, thank you. So I do. I have a test and it's a test that can determine if you've been impacted by sexual betrayal and they can find it by going to braveone.com forward slash free quiz. And this is maybe the first step you might take in asking yourself some questions about what's going on in your world. God wants you to have healthy relationships. He has created every single one of the 10 commandments to do with relationships. The first three have to do with our relationship with him. And the next seven have to do with our relationship with one another, because he knows that our relationships are crucial, vital to our well-being and our ability to thrive But sometimes because of sin, because of deception, our relationships become broken and we can't close our eyes to that because it's just like living in a toxic environment. It's going to do more damage. And we want to clean up the environment if it's possible. And the same thing in marriage. If two people are willing to look at those things and work on those things, they can grow through them and marriages can be restored, but you can't fix this all by yourself. And so for now, if it's you who's betrayed, get some help for you so that you know what to do to take the next right step forward. Thanks, Sherry, so much. That's all for this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. To take Sherry's free quiz, go to braveone.com forward slash free quiz. And if you found this information helpful, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.